Welcome to EU Code Week podcasts. We bring coding, computational thinking, robotics, and innovation closer to you, your community, and your school. Hello, everyone. We are Ariana Blasic from Croatia and Eugenia Casariego from Spain. We are your hosts today, but before we get started, here's a quick introduction from our side, Ariana. I'm a teacher trainer, and you, Eugenia? I'm an education expert. Of course, we are both part of the EU Cold Week team, and we are passionate about digital technologies, teaching, and education. With this series of podcasts, we'd like to contribute to changing the education in Europe and adapting it to the challenges of our time. Today, we're going to talk about coding and poetry. In another series of this podcast, we explore a little bit about the connection between art, coding, programming, and robotics. And so in this uh, episode, we want to take a deep dive into poetry, into e-literature, and this fascinating world of how we can play with words through code. And so, as you have probably already seen, we can also use coding to express our artistic talent and creativity. We want to speak about coding and poetry with our guest Jaka Zeleznikar from Slovenia. Jaka is an author of net art and e-literature. He also leads workshops on programming and creative writing for participants of different age groups. Welcome, Jaka. Welcome. Hello, hello. Hello, Jaka. Very happy that you have found some time for us today. I'm very happy to have you here. So actually, um, Ariana just mentioned two very interesting terms, which is net art and e-literature. So can you tell our listeners a bit more about these two terms? What do they mean? Let me start with the net art. It was an international movement which brought together artists from very different backgrounds, but we all met at the point of being online. If we remember a little bit, that was the very early internet. That was before there was Google, that's before social networks. The main idea is to produce a work of art which is original, it's online. We can easily imagine there's a lot of artworks that we can find online as reproductions. So in case of net art, the reproduction would be in other media than online. It also evolved a part of computer literature, which later on came called like electronic literature or e-literature. We can talk about different generations of electronic literature, starting with as early as the 1950s with big mainframe computers. Electronic literature, it's also hard to pinpoint what exactly it is. Uh, So basically, we can say it's digital born, but then uh, again, like every book starts in a text editor, which is basically a digital tool. It either can be an umbrella term for for everything digital that uh, touches the subject of creative writing. While the electronic literature refers in that that it uses computation culture or environment uh, where the computation plays a major role. So I think we can clarify that it uses computation in non-trivial way. So first of all, it's good to put this historical perspective into both terms, because I think when we hear of um, net art and illiterature, we tend to think, oh, this is something that came about in the last five years. So it's very good that you gave us this historical perspective. Um, can you give us then some examples, projects that you've worked on? 
I was most active in this early period of 1990s. I was involved in net art and electronic literature. The, the field of electronic literature would, was also present in these net art festivals and exhibitions. And, uh, I would point out two institutions. They're both connected to academia. One is American and it's called Electronic Literature Organization. The other one, it's called ALMNCP. It's also academic, you can, by the name, you can probably guess it's connected with some EU project. Both of these initiatives are a really good source of information on the works, on authors, on, and they both also produce some anthologies of electronic literature. Apart from those two sources, that there is, uh, is actually a lot of authors uh, active, but it's basically very, very, very hard to find. One of the things is that this is not exactly the mainstream, my first major work was in that was back in 1997, a collection of uh, interactive poetry. There were some things that were generative and would respond to mouse movements uh, of the user. You know, it's like a DJ playing parts of different songs. Would be, you would get like small samples of poetry, and then by doing DJ-like moves, you would get an, a stream of text, which was the works of mine that I'm still really proud of. Later on, I would record a child, you know, how it giggles, and I would make uh, this contract. I was extracting the latest tweet from Twitter that was mentioning kissing. Uh, so you would get the latest tweet on this topic, and they, it was overlaid with this child's laughter, uh, like giggling uh, about mostly adults talking uh, odd stuff <laughs> online. I just wanted to say that you are really very, very creative, Yaka. I also visited your page and tried a poem, an interactive poem. So it was really great and easy to do it and put myself in the shoes of a co-author. So it was uh, you and me who created a new poem. Uh, thank you for such great activities. I'm sure our listeners would be very pleased to be able to do similar things, not only as teachers, uh, but also their students. So I was wondering, what's the recognition of net art within the art world? Is it easy to find funding? Is it easy to find institutional support or recognition? Um, if I would be right now to apply, for example, for funding for Creative Europe, which is the, as you know, the, the program of the EU to fund creative works, would it be easy for me to present a work with net art and get funding for that? I would say that the main moment of net art, it's um, like, most of the authors consider this period to be over. I think this period ended around introduction of this uh, Web 2.0. You know, when I say to, to, to students that I made a website before there was Google, they start to treat me as a living fossil. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Even though it was not such a long time ago. <laughs> I think that uh, basically electronic literature, it's, it's still alive and kicking, evolving together with technology. Yes, of course, I would definitely encourage authors to, to apply for the funds, even with uh, works like that. Uh, why not? I'm especially curious because uh, about what you mentioned, because you mentioned that perhaps net art is not so alive today. However, one of the things that net art started to do at the beginning is kind of to protest, to draw attention to certain issues, right? So we have like the famous Redder, you know, by Marc Napier and so on and so forth. And so I wonder now that there's even more things to protest about in the internet. So briefly, you mentioned fake news, you mentioned spam emails and so on and so forth. Wouldn't there be even more of a need for net art today? 
Oh, yes, I agree. It would be great to have coordinate art. I just think that the use of internet became like so widespread. It pushed the content like net art works. It pushed them out of the mainstream completely. So I think the internet mainstream, it's a horrible place. It's very, very hard to make a difference between uh, truth and a lie, especially on social networks. And plus the, the, the algorithms which are used to provide you with the content are really putting you in this uh, digital bubble. I mean, the, the, these things are well known, but people don't react to them. So works that point out to, to such issues are great. The, the latest one that uh, really made me smile uh, was an add-on for the Firefox browser that actually clicked on every commercial available on the any web page. You as the user of, of this add-on would, would have no idea that this happened, but all the advertisers got the, the feedback that the commercials were clicked. So if you do that for a while, it would totally confuse your profile because it, it, it would render the information available totally meaningless. A nice way to fight back against this surveillance capitalism. Indeed, I've seen that you created a few expressive add-ons in Firefox. Yes, I did. Uh, and that, oh, that's also the, the huge part of uh, why it's hard to find net art. Recently, I mean, the safest bet at this moment would be to visit the Horizon uh, Net Art Anthology. That's a New York-based organization dealing with preservation of net art also, not, not only to catalog it. I did a lot of things that were quite subversive, but unfortunately none of them works anymore. Even of, on my website, which is highly unmaintained for years now, most of the works are not working due to rapid technological development. Yeah, but even if they are not functioning because of such rapid technological advances, they are still worth visiting. And I think it's important that they are there because uh, they are a proof of how it evolved, how it developed. These works are still available. It's great if they can be restored. Some of the works are probably still working. It's an important resource. It marks the break from one paradigm to another. It's uh, the step into the digital uh, reality that we are having today. Uh, and it's interesting to see where the ideas were heading and what actually happens. There is already quite a lot of generations that were born with, with internet. They get so little information about how to evaluate the information, you know, is it real? Is it fake? It should be trusted. It should not be trusted. What's the difference between commercial and uh, a content? What is the product placement? I mean, I've been at exhibitions where people can actually intercept the, the traffic and change the content. So, for example, if you would like to manipulate some group of people, you could provide them with content which is uh, fake to 99% of the things that you see online, especially if you're hooked to social networks. It's like get out, go to the library, talk with older people, talk with experts and all these important issues, because otherwise we're going to get a society which will be totally lost. I mean, if you believe any nonsense that comes around on the social media, it ends up that you are totally lost. Absolutely. And here I would like to remind our listeners that Kodwig has also produced a learning bit on media literacy, where you will find lesson plans on how to introduce these topics to your students and how to help them navigate the net.
So media literacy is an important topic that teachers have been implementing in their classes all over Europe. And media literacy service students is what we need to aim for, of course. Can you also tell us how you combine it with coding? Uh, yes, okay. It's an example where it's it's very minimal use of code. It totally helps if you know some of the HTML, if you know a little bit of CSS, you can also change images and so on. Uh, it provides you with some opportunity, which is usually, uh, especially younger uh, children, like the second half of primary school, are really happy with this task. But also, of course, the students, they get way more critical than children. <laughs> Yes, but if, if you want to go into the connections between writing and code uh, further, probably it's the easiest if I just give an example. I was working closely with an expert on making puppets and a programmer and myself. We made a puppet that you could carry around and it had a small computer inside and a loudspeaker and GPS and compass. So it knew where it is and it was made for a very small part of the, of the city. When you were walking around, at certain points, it would start to tell you a story of the things that you were looking at. So, for example, here, it's the connection between uh, the underlying code and the writing itself. So, this is one example of that sort of things that are basically geolocation-based narratives. So, you can use it like this, or you can also of course, use it as augmented reality and you can put text on the streets or and you can just see them with cameras or, or with helmets. And it can again, can have uh, the context, may have a really strong impact because if you write some words in front of Ministry of Culture or if you write them in front of your school or in front of McDonald's, can have a completely different meaning so that's one of the things. And the other area where the coding itself might provide a valuable tool is to make generative poetry, to grab a Twitter feed of some politician, for example, and you can choose to combine this text of his last five tweets with something else and try to either show the ugliness of it or, or make a funny twist on them or something like that. You could put any Twitter handle, that means any Twitter user, in, into the little window on the, on the website, and it would get out the latest tweets of that person. I send this text to a service that would extract me keywords, and based on that keywords, I would get some content back from the Twitter, which is also recent, and I, I would arrange these tweets in a way that would actually mimic real conversations. Uh, and of course, that was declared that this conversation is fake, but they were very convincing and they, they actually looked sometimes more intelligent than you can actually find in the comments. It's an example of how you can actually fake conversations, you know, and I think that people have some sort of trust because it's on the computer. The amount of trust into what people see on the computer, it's amazing. I think it's very important to point out also topics like this. I mean, of course, that's, it's, I also love uh, to read and I love poetry, nothing against it, of course. I'm just saying these issues are part of the world and it's good to address them. Yeah, it has a huge impact on teachers and students. You've mentioned some benefits of uh, using coding and poetry. What are some other benefits? Why is it beneficial to use coding and poetry at the same time? Combining this very engineering uh, world with a world of humanistic studies, 
I think it's extremely important, but not just for the artists or lovers of literature, but uh, also for the IT people. Programming by itself, it's basically totally boring. That's, uh, it's just logic. It's yes, no, and maybe. On the other hand, whatever area of life you touch with programming, you, you greatly enhance the possibilities. So it's very important that people writing software, they implement values uh, and ethics into computing. For example, it's like self-driving cars. Should they kill the driver or should they kill the pedestrian? And what should they do if one of them is pregnant? And issues like that, you know, and for this business part, you can get half working software for free and then you can buy these pro versions. Uh, and it turns out that without pro versions, the software might be dangerous, which was happened in the airplane industry lately. This is not something that study of programming alone can give you. So that's why I think it's, it's very important for any student of programming to get in touch with crazy artists. <laughs> and the, the greatest benefit of combining both approaches is that you are able to understand the language of intuition and the language of the logic. And it's always better to speak two languages than one. Absolutely. We are diving now into practice and we will be talking about your teaching activities. So we've, uh, you've already mentioned some of your projects. One thing that we were wondering, so one thing that we tend to talk a lot about with our guests is like, what's the golden age, right? So this is a question that maybe has no answer. But um, so, for example, you mentioned that you're a works of leader um, of coding, programming and poetry. So uh, what age are your students usually? I actually worked with quite a wide range of, of age groups. So I, I worked in primary school from the ages of 10. And I worked with teenagers. You have to be really well equipped with good nerves. <laughs> and uh, I work with, regularly with students for years at the University of Nagurica at Academia Umetnosti, that's Academy of Arts. When I have a, a, a brief but really intense uh, workshop on web development, which also covers the topics that were discussed before, and I also worked with festivals of literature with uh, adults. Uh, it turned out that basically all the groups responded really well and they, were, uh, they got the impression they got something new because it, it's something like this is totally lacking in Slovene school system. And probably as I talk, it's, it's not very common also in other countries because I, I think that everything is still book-based and paper-based, and I think that's great and it's fine, and it's, uh, it's a tradition we should uh, cherish. We should also be aware that uh, the world that children in are living is digital. So yes, I go with my daughter to library, but mostly she hangs on digital devices. I think there's also uh, an element which is uh, vital to teaching, the element of play. I usually run my workshops for some outside observer. It might look totally unstructured, but it's not. I mean, I know what I'm trying to do. I really let the participants really get this feeling that they are totally free. So they are basically playing. 
the subject itself it's very new for them it's very easy for them to play because they don't they don't have these restrictions these internalized restrictions you know because we we all know that uh, in school we were taught like uh, when we are reading poetry you should behave like this and this which is the great method to destroy any joy in dealing with things like that so i what i like to do at, at the workshop is to to make them playful and to let, especially the young children, I let them laugh, I let them jump around. They are showing to each other stuff while they were in the middle of, of the class and, and, and stuff like that. But in the end, they all produce something. Usually it's really interesting. I mean, I, I really enjoy reading their works. And uh, plus the thing we do, especially with younger participants, we make screen grabs or something like that and we print them out. And we just put like a temporary exhibition in, in the school or in the place we are working at. And uh, when the parents come to, to pick them up, uh, they can show to the parents that they have work on exhibition. And that's also a very nice moment for them. I cannot stress enough how the play is important in, in, in these workshops by discovering something new, some area which is new to them. I think that's way better than just to say them, okay, now this is the computer and this is this, all the dangerous things on the internet. They can see the ease of creating and manipulating the online content. It's way harder to make a book with editor and language editor and proofreader and stuff like that, and then just write an article online about any topic. So this hands-on experience. Indeed, a learning by doing, right? learning by playing this is what matters this helps students uh, learn but uh, not really thinking that they are learning so it's not like a burden but uh, it's it's fun for them and they learn much more uh, yes and for example on the level of university i noticed that they already came to the school with framed mind as so i say we will do a website and I, I lose immediately, I lose five of them. And they produce this website, which has a, a header on the top and there is a column in the middle and there is perhaps some, some stuff on the right and on the left and there is a footer at the bottom and uh, they get bad marks for that. Because I, I, I tried to force them to stop thinking about all the things that they already saw and now start working on some solutions that are basically new or creative outside of this frame of mind. One of the problems with schools is they reward this rigid way of approaching things that it should be done as the teacher says. Let the students just be themselves and sometimes for them to become themselves it's important to break this thinking that it's not them, but they think it is. Indeed, to give them a bit of food for thought and a bit of like stepping out of what they normally do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let imagination run wild. This is, this is a problem because, uh, as you said, they've been learning in a certain way and now it's difficult. We will stay a bit longer on the practical side. Uh, let's now have a look at some teaching tips and recommendations. Uh, how can teachers prepare students for the future? What are your tips based on your experience? Yes, I mean, my greatest tip would be that what I do, it looks quite similar as a workshop. The first tip would be how as little people 
in one group as possible. That's uh, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, uh, I really hope that we'll, we will not be forced to, to teach online ever again. If we do, uh, I noticed that especially in this in this case, it's it's very good to have small groups because you somehow keep an eye on are you losing somebody because uh, it's very easy that Facebook is just on the next tab. Uh, small groups and I actually preferred to work with cameras on. It's uh, nice to see them and also the feeling of being together in a group uh, was much better. I also used quite a lot of uh, asking for feedback because that kept them engaged. I asked frequently for feedback and I also asked a lot of feedback in this practical part. So we are now here, is everybody done, uh, any issues? But I, I really hope that most of the teaching will now be able to be done uh, live. And uh, yeah, the other, as I already said, you know, the element of play, it's, it's great, especially in creative um, environments. Thank you, Yaka, for sharing uh, your experience and your ideas with us. I think there are so many things that teachers can do with their students and they can start with little things like including feedback, more reflection, allowing students to play. So I think our listeners will be very happy to give it a try in their classrooms. And I think another important topic we touched upon today is just to bring awareness to our students of how the internet is and, and the dangers and the risks of the internet. So I think this is something as well to take away from this podcast. Yes, uh, well, thank you for, for the invitation. I, I actually really like the initiative you are all involved in. And I, I think it will, it will actually bring a lot of good to the community. And uh, I wish you all the best with your future work. Thank you, Jack, and thank you. Thanks a lot for joining us today, for sharing your expertise. So, so thank you very much. Thank you. We have already reached the end for today. I guess that was a lot of information for you, but we hope that you did have some fun and also have learned something new. In case you now want to get started with coding, go check codeweek.eu. There you can find some excellent tutorials on how to get started with coding. That's it from our side.